Alright, well, welcome back to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics, everyone. My name is Josh Gibbs, and uh, on this July 5th, following the 4th of July fireworks, we're going to have a debate between myself, uh, representing a free grace position, and Matthew Broderick, who's going to represent the Catholic position. And just so happens that following the, the fireworks on the 4th, we are going to have a debate uh, on a fire that will try your work. So there should be a good uh, substance, a conversation that you'll find here today. And please feel free to share this, like it, and rate us as well. Uh, you should be able to see this on audio podcasts by the beginning of the day tomorrow, but this is going to be a good one. Uh, at the end, you'll have a chance to call in with your questions to either myself or to Matthew. And that number is going to be 816-866-0025. And I'll put that up on the screen for you to see as well. Uh, but stay with us and we'll be right back after this opening video. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved. That one I'm going to ch If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up... Because you've rejected his provision for you, and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men, and he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. Question that seeks to provide an answer to this question For whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question For whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, so again, welcome back to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. I do want to let you guys know that I'm going to take a week off next week, and uh, we'll follow up on the 19th with James Snap Jr., where we are going to refute some of the arguments that Bartman makes uh, regarding the quotations of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, as well as other questions uh, that people bring up regarding what was actually written in the Gospels to challenge the authority of the Word of God. So that should be an interesting conversation with myself and James. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We'll have a link for that uh, as soon as possible that you can go ahead and subscribe for and make sure you sign up for a notification uh, so you don't miss us when we do go live. But Matthew, I've got you on the screen. It's good to have you back, and I hope you had a good fourth, man. Yeah, it was very nice. I appreciate it, Josh. Thank you very much. So the it was, last uh, strange. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome on any time, which uh, we did do a debate. If you haven't seen that, uh, for those of you who are viewing live right now or who are going to view or listen to this episode, go back and check out that last debate that myself and Matthew did regarding the doctrine of justification. I think that was a really that was a really good debate. And I think uh, Matt and I, if I can call you Matt, we get along pretty we get along well enough um, that it's it's a conversation that flows pretty nicely, pretty evenly. Um, and we, we're able to make our points and challenge each other in ways that, uh, you know, can get you to thinking a little bit about some things that you may not have thought about before. So uh, with that said, we're going to go ahead and jump into kind of the format for what this debate tonight is going to look like. And it's on the, the um, it, it's on the topic of purgatory. So I labeled this particular post, Heaven, Hell, or Purgatory, 
where does the Christian go when they die? Is is purgatory biblical in your eyes or through the biblical interpretation? So uh, kind of the structure is going to look like this. We're going to do 15-minute openings uh, each. Matthew's going to get us going with that. Then we'll, cro- we'll, we'll transition to seven-minute rebuttals, then 15-minute cross-examinations each, and then a second round of seven-minute cross-examinations each, followed up by cl- five-minute closing statements. Then we'll open it up to questions from you and the audience, uh, and you can call in and ask us any question you like. So with that said, uh, Matthew, let me get the camera on you, and I need to need to get this um, I need to get the countdown timer up there so that should be 15 minutes and where is that timer at should be showing up there and it's white so I'm gonna put that down here so you guys can see that on the couch it can kind of blend a little bit better there so and I'll let you know when you've got a minute left um, I'll just chime in and say one minute left so let me reset that clock, and whenever you're ready, have at it. Sure. All right. Uh, once again, thank you, Josh, for having me, and thank you to your uh, listening audience for uh, the opportunity to present the Catholic understanding and teaching of uh, the biblical basis, for, uh, not just the biblical basis, but the uh, tradition as well. Because as we know, in Second Thessalonians, it talks about uh, the Word of God being both written and oral. Uh, by word of mouth or by letter. So uh, as Catholic Christians, we believe that uh, the word of God is first and foremost Jesus Christ, uh, but also uh, the oral, which came before the written. Um, Six of the 12 apostles never wrote anything down, and they still taught with oral authority. And uh, so we we strive to the scriptures as being very authoritative, very holy, but uh, also the tradition. Like I said, those six 12 apostles were part of that tradition. Um, six of those 12 apostles that never wrote anything down are indeed part of that sacred tradition um, and have just as much hierarchy and authority as does the written word um, and to those whom they taught. So once again, thank you for having me. As the Catholic Church has always taught uh, from the very beginning and will always teach at the end of time until Jesus Christ, the name of all names, our God and our Savior, comes back to return um, to judge the living and the dead. He um, the church has always taught, like I said, we'll continue to teach that we are saved by God's grace. It is God's grace that saves. But the difference between um, Catholic teaching and many, many Protestant churches is that we must cooperate with God's grace. Uh, we must do his will. Um, we must allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. As Galatians uh, talks about in Paul and Galatians, we must put on man. So, um, in regards to purgatory, even though the word is not found in Holy Scriptures, that does not mean uh, it's not there in a, in a way that's either implicit or explicit, like the word Trinity. Um, the word Bible itself is not Holy Scripture, the word Bible, the word Trinity, um, but it is there in terms of being uh, explicit or implicit. We could start with 1 Corinthians 3, but I'll let you go into other verses before that. Uh, but even before the Holy Scripture itself, in one sense, uh, going into script, scripture verses, we must understand what the church teaches regarding um, uh, punishment due to sin. There are two types of punishment due to sin. There is um, eternal punishment, and there is also temporal punishment. Temporal punishment is, is very important. It's very biblical. It's very divine in its teaching, oral and written, but it's also very overlooked, and it's very negated by, by, by many, many Protestants. 
it's it's negated set. Um, but the biblical basis is indeed there. Just go by scripture alone, that, that's fine. But for example, we have David, uh, King David. He was uh, a man after the heart of, uh, of God, it says, but it's still God um, as a father disciplines. And we know that for sin, again, with sin, there's two. There's two consequences. There's an eternal punishment and a temporal punishment. So if we could just focus on temporal punishments, um, that is what the basis for the biblical basis for purgatory is. Jesus Christ, who is God, the eternal son, the almighty, the everlasting, our high priest, the foretold redeemer in Genesis. He is the one who took on the eternal punishment due to sin for those who believe in him and for those who obey him. Um, and for those who um, obey and hope in him, we um, have him um, as our as our savior, as one who we can place our trust in, uh, not just himself, but in his words, because him and his words cannot be separated. But David, going back to King David, King David was uh, he had committed uh, adultery and he had committed murder, yet he was forgiven, but he was punished. So that's where temporal punishment comes in. He was forgiven by God, but he was punished for his sins. And it wasn't natural punishment. It wasn't just natural. It was a divine punishment. His firstborn son uh, was taken from him. His firstborn son had passed, and that was a result uh, of his sin. He was forgiven his sin, but he was punished. And that's what purgatory is in reference to, eternal and temporal punishment. David also had a similar situation where I believe he numbered his army and he numbered his men. And this was, in one sense, um, offensive to God because he didn't trust. He didn't trust God in that man. So what happened was uh, he, again, was forgiven his sin, but he was punished. And he was given the opportunity to choose three punishments. And these were just not natural consequences. Some people say there's natural consequences to sin. There are, but there's also, also supernatural. And that's divine. And that's why God gave David three punishments to choose. Um, and David chose, rather than being punished by, by man, having be chased by man, uh, having been haunted and run down by man, he says, I, I will take, uh, I mean, I will take, I will take a view, uh, oh God, uh, for great is your mercy. But it's still a punishment. So that's, that's what purgatory is in reference to, temporal punishment. And there are certain things that we can do to atone for those temporal punishments due to our sins. We can't do what Jesus Christ did. Um, our God, our merciful and good and holy and innocent God, we can never do what he did because he's beautiful, he is innocent, and he is God, perfection himself. So we can't atone for the eternal punishment. We can't do that. Christ alone has done that by um, offering up his once and perfect sacrifice uh, on the cross, um, which he freely chose to lay down his life. So that atoned for the eternal punishment, for those who obey him, for those who love him, and for those who love one another. But the temporal punishment is something we can atone for. For example, if you look at the book of Daniel, verses four, uh, chapter four, verse twenty-seven, it says, um, "Break off your sins by practicing mercy," uh, and that is also in reference to what, what Christ does and what Peter does. Peter says in first, uh, so this is even after uh, the once and perfect sacrifice of Christ. Temporal punishments is confirmed. Peter says, "Love one another." For love covers a multitude of your sins. How can we cover our sins when Christ already covered them on the cross? And that's, once again, the distinction between temporal and uh, eternal punishment. Um, James says um, to those who turn uh, one back 
from the error of his ways will save his soul and also cover a multitude of his own sins. So we can cover our own sins to some that's offensive, to some that's blasphemy. How can we cover our sins? But it's right there in the written word of God. And that is the temporal punishment. Um, because we will still, even as Christians, even as Christians, um, be punished for our sins. Many Protestant uh, pastors don't like to um, admit that. They kind of white out those Holy Scripture verses where it regards to accountability. They said Jesus Christ took on all our punishments. Jesus Christ took on every punishment uh, that we deserve. But that's not a reality. That's not a divine truth. Jesus Christ, our God, took on the eternal punishment, but not the, not the uh, temporary punishment, the temporal punishment. For example, if you look at Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus is talking about a servant of God. And he says to the servant who knows the will of God, but does not do it, does not act in accordance, shall be severely punished. And to the one who is a servant of God, but who is ignorant of the will of God, shall still be punished, but only lighter and a lighter degree of severity than as to the one who was, knew the will of God and uh, did not do it. So here we have servants of God being punished. Uh, they're being punished. And this is in the time of Christ. This is not Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is the law of grace. This is the law of grace. But it's still the law of divine truth. And that's accountability. We still have servants of God being punished for their sins. It's temporal punishments. Um, and that's where purgatory comes in. Uh, many believe that, um, Protestant pastors believe that, well, we still need to be sanctified throughout the course of our life. Which to me, uh, I'm going to speak to Josh about that when we come uh, a little further on. But to me, it doesn't really make sense in one sense. It, it's why do we need to be sanctified based on how we live if it's sanctification takes place on how Christ lived uh, by faith alone. That should make us perfect. But sanctification, as Catholic Christians, we believe that sanctification um, is something that takes place at baptism. We have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. The waters that Christ went in to be baptized were made holy by his presence. So baptism uh, now saves us. It washes, it cleans, sanctifies, and justifies. But uh, over the course of time, if we sin after we are baptized, we lose that justification. We lose that sanctification. We have to, in one sense, cooperate with the grace of God and continue to strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord in Hebrews 12, 14. We have another reference to punishment for a servant of God. If you look at Matthew 18, 34 and 35, we have Jesus Christ, who is God, uh, the King of mercy, the King of truth, the King of heaven, who says um, to the servant, he's a servant of God. He was forgiven, but then he went out and he did not forgive um, his neighbor. He did not forgive. He was forgiven, but did not forgive. And it says on um, that person would be thrown into the, into the prison and handed over to the torturers. Uh, and he said, Jesus says, so too will my heavenly father do to you. So too will my heavenly father do to you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So here we have a servant of God who's forgiven and yet who does not forgive um, and is punished, thrown into a prison. It's a temporary prison and uh, he's eventually released. Um, and that's where we believe purgatory comes in. We can focus on 1 Corinthians 3, and I guess maybe it's a good time to do it now. Paul talks about how both the works and the man um, go through the fire, the person and the works. Um, some people say, well, it's just the works that are being purged. Um, but that's not true because Paul says the person is saved as through fire. 
For example, we wouldn't have people, uh, we wouldn't have hell just being uh, a bunch of uh, bad works and, and sins, uh, but nobody's there. Just, just sins and bad works in the flames. No, it's the person and his works. Uh, because Revelation 14, 13 says, um, our deeds follow us. Our deeds follow us. So the deeds and the person cannot be separated. Just like Jesus Christ and his teachings cannot be separated. They're one and the same. So we have two um, instances, Luke 12, uh, Matthew 5, 26, about people being servants of God, being thrown into the prison. And being released is an eventual temporary release. So 1 Corinthians 3 uh, is a reference also to Malachi, uh, chapter 3. Malachi, which I believe is in the Protestant uh, scriptures, as opposed to the Septuagint, which may not be. Um, but we have Jesus quoting from the Septuagint about what we can do to atone for the temporal punishment due to our sins. When Jesus mm -hmm. says, give alms, give alms when all shall be clean within you. So here we have Jesus Christ himself saying, Give alms, and you shall be clean inside. Jesus didn't say, have faith alone, and you will be clean inside. He says, give alms. So that's something we can do to atone for the temporal punishment, do our sins. We can't atone for the eternal punishment. God, uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our, our merciful King and Savior, did that. But we have to, um, uh, like Jesus said, we must be ready. We must be ready, and we can only be ready by cooperating with God's saving grace. We can do nothing. We can do no good. No good apart from God. God alone is the good, the source of all good. Anything that's good that we do is the Holy Spirit inside us. But we have to allow the Holy Spirit that's inside us to move, to move us, to transform us, to renew us. And that's why John 15, uh, verse 2, Jesus says, To those branches that are in me that do not bear fruit um, shall be taken away. So we must bear fruit. We must love one another. We must forgive one another. Um, but at the end of our life, um, if we need sanctification, it takes place over time. If, for example, if we die in, uh, with, uh, you know, with um, sarcasm, uh, if we die with ill will or gossip, we still need to be sanctified. We have to, we have to be sanctified. So sanctification, purgatory is just, uh, it's that purgatorial cleansing, purging fire that makes us holy, that makes us perfect. Um, the difference between the Catholic teaching and the Protestant teaching is Protestant teaching uh, is you are declared innocent. You are declared perfect. Where the Catholic teaching is you are made perfect. If someone's sarcastic, if I'm sarcastic uh, to someone and I haven't atoned for that uh, punishment, uh, you know, the temporal punishment, if I haven't, uh, you know, uh, shown mercy, if I haven't asked for forgiveness, if I die with that sarcasm in my heart, I'm not going to be allowed into heaven still being sarcastic, um, the purgatorial fire uh, will cleanse me of all that sarcasm uh, if I'm a servant of God, if I spoke from the mercy of God and repented. But I still need to allow those imperfections to be perfected by the, the, the consuming fire, which Pope Benedict said so beautifully, that consuming fire is, is Jesus Christ himself, who both um, in, in its, it, its fire of, of intensity, who both Punishes. 30 seconds trans. left. Sure. Punishments. Uh, thank you, Judge. Punish, uh, that fire punishes, but transforms. Punishes, but transforms. It's a fatherly, uh, loving discipline, which allows us to be holy, uh, to enter into the presence of God. The God uh, that he has purchased for us in that heaven by his most precious blood.
All right. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. So let me put the camera back on to me. I'll reset this. Uh, I'll reset this clock here for 15 minutes and get into my opening statement here. So thanks again, Matthew, for being willing to join this debate and do a debate on the topic of purgatory. I think it's, uh, I think it's essential to understand the relationship of uh, kind of the Catholic view of the afterlife, the eschaton, and the purgatorial fires and the necessity of purgatorial fires for, for cleansing and atonement for temporary sins. And we'll get into that, but uh, it's directly related to the doctrine of justification and specifically the differences between the doctrine of justification between the Catholic and the non-Catholic being myself representing the free grace position. So let me begin with these words. The work of Jesus is absolutely the foundation for our salvation. The work built on this foundation, Jesus Christ, is then judged and rewarded. The foundation is not judged, but that which is built on that foundation is judged, as seen in 1 Corinthians 3, which we will spend some more time in our cross-examination and rebuttal period as well. So, in discussing the idea of purgatory, it's important for me to give you a bird's-eye view of where it is that I'm coming from. So, I just said I hold a free grace theology. That's going to make strong distinctions between eternal life, eternal rewards, lordship salvation, lordship sanctification, loss of rewards versus loss of eternal life, and many more areas distinct from Catholicism. But the foundation is understanding how one attains eternal life first and foremost, and this is grounded in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. If the atoning work of Jesus is not enough for your salvation, then the Catholic may very well have a reason to believe in purgatory. If there's any way at all that requires the Catholic to atone or merit their salvation, they have a good reason to believe in purgatory. However, if the Bible teaches purgatory implicitly or explicitly, the Catholic may have a good reason to believe in purgatory. If the Bible teaches indulgences, then the Catholic may have a good reason to believe in purgatory. Now, for my first point, I, I do believe uh, that Jesus was the substitute on the cross for the sinner. That would be me, you, and all people who have ever lived. Our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross, and our penalty was paid. What we need now is not the penalty for our sin to be paid. That is done. What we need to be, what we need is to be cleansed and transformed from children of wrath and darkness to children of God, crossing over from darkness to life, becoming children of God. Now this comes through the new birth. This comes by the one thing and one thing alone, which is by grace through faith, faith in Jesus Christ through a broken and contrite heart, which would be repentance, also known as godly sorrow. Now, if God can bring condemnation on believers in time, which we talked about, uh, which, which Matthew talked about with David, he talked about with, uh, with other examples as well, there's no necessary reason to believe all punishments have been removed at the judgment seat of Christ. Indeed, there seems to be numerous scriptures that indicate that this is the case. The condemnation, however, has nothing to do with the believer's eternal salvation. The atonement has forever settled that issue. Now, that quotation comes from Joseph Dillo in his book, Final Destiny. Now, consider the following passage as it relates to my view regarding the biblical teaching of a judgment of one's works that results in rewards versus a judgment of one's works that results in one's salvation. In Mark 8, 37 and 38, it says, Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, it's my contention that a man is saved, that is fully justified by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which of course is the imputed righteousness of Christ to the penitent. That's by the finished atoning work of Christ on the cross. And a man's works to save and build on his inheritance in the coming kingdom where Christ will reign on earth, beginning his eternal cosmic government, in which we will either be rewarded with a role in serving with Christ based on our service in this life, or we will be denied that role in other rewards where Jesus will be ashamed of us as we are of him, if it be so in this life as well, as we just read in Mark chapter 8. You see, this debate is about more than just purgatory. It's directly linked to what you believe about Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. The Catholic has to deny penal substitution and imputed righteousness of Christ because you believe that you as a Catholic atone for your sins in purgatory through what you uh, what your cleansing fires or of the purging fires uh, that purge these mortal and venial sins. And that's something that I'll question Matthew on regarding mortal sins as we get into the cross-examination as it relates to these purgatorial fires as well. But but essentially, these, these, these cleansing lim- limbo status, purgatorial cleansing fires result in not the salvation of the person, but the cleansing of, of the person, where, where the Catholic is somehow synergistically, meritorious, meritoriously through your works in this life, and a means of God's grace, which allows you to have the works that God will look at in determining those works which will burn versus those which won't burn, uniting that person in this fire with judgment, with their works to be burned one day, and uh, determine their outcome, whether it is heaven or hell. Now, to my Catholic friends that are listening and watching this debate, the appeal of the gospel is the simplicity of the gospel, all right? That's this. Jesus paid it all. It's that simple. You cannot do anything to merit your uh, justification, not even to merit more grace. Uh, The work of Christ and your eternal soul, they lie in the balance of the work of Jesus versus your works. So essentially, that's what's going to happen. When you get to the judgment, you're not going to have your works that's being judged and and deciding whether you go to purgatory, heaven, or hell. It's going to be the works of Christ versus your works. Christ on one side of the pendulum, yours on the other side. Whichever's, whosever works are greater is, is going to be what determines whether you get into heaven or not. Now, the free grace position says this, your works are not going to match up when, it, when they're lined up against Christ. What you need is the work of Christ to be your work. Uh, or else you're, you're going to fail. Um, and there's no question about that. And that's what we believe is our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross. He, w- he became a curse for us. He paid the penalty of, of sin for us. And he, he took our place in the punishment that we should have paid ourselves. Now, what he does in return for that is it's called, it's called a um, double impu- imputation. Our sins are imputed to him. His righteousness is, is imputed to us upon belief. And that's, that's what we believe is happening in salvation. Now, if, if we believe that's what happens with salvation, there's no need for purgatory. Why is there no need for purgatory? Because the Catholic believes that you have temporary sins that Christ did not atone for, that now you have the responsibility of atoning for yourself before you can enter the presence of Christ. And uh, there's major problems with this, but let's continue. All right, so once you've passed from darkness to life in this life, um, and you've put on Christ upon believing in Jesus, you're now free 
you are free. I can't tell you how big of a word that is for a Catholic to hear. It, it, the Catholic faith is, it, it's, it's, it's a bondage. You are in bondage in the Catholic faith. What, faith. what you need to do is be freed from this bondage and understand that the payment of your sins is not reliant upon you or your works. It's reliant upon the work of Christ and your faith in Christ, period. So your, your service is what results in an everlasting reward. When you get to the judgment, you're not going to end up at what we call the great white throne judgment. These are distinctions the Catholic cannot make. They cannot make a distinction between the great white throne judgment and the judge, judgment seat of Christ. Now, the free grace believer can make a distinction. We believe that the judgment seat of Christ takes place before the great white throne judgment. And why is this? Because your eschatology is going to impact your view on the judgment. Now, the Catholic is typically all millennial, which means that uh, Christ has already come spiritually. He's not coming physically. Uh, and there's there's problems with this, and we can get into that if we need to, but it may get away from the idea of, of purgatory. But what this does essentially is it puts the judgment as something that is necessarily future for the believer at the same time as the unbeliever and the angels. We make a distinction between the judgment of the unbeliever and the angels, which would be the great white throne judgment before death and hell and, and the devil and his angels and non-believers are cast into the lake of fire. And the judge, what's, what's problematic about that is the Christian is actually taking place in this judgment, judging the angels according to 1 Corinthians 6. So the judgment seat of Christ is something that takes place prior to the great white throne judgment, and we are directly playing a role in that. So, so what you're judged for at the judgment seat of Christ is for your service, and what it results in is an everlasting reward with a seat in heaven, robes of righteousness, five crowns, a royal diadem, a role in his everlasting government that moves out into eternity and throughout all of his creation, including the cosmic world, and that uh, kind of makes things a little more exciting uh, when, when you t uh, take into consideration God's overall program based off of uh, Isaiah 9-6, where the increase of his government shall see no end. So the idea of purgatory truly began to develop in the teachings of Augustine, specific specifically the influence of Manichaean Gnosticism, which he brought into Christianity. And uh, Ken Wilson describes Augustinianism as Manichaean Christianity. This idea of purgatory is directly tied to the Gnostic influence of Augustine regarding his eschatology, which directly influenced his view of the end times as seen in his espoused idea of purgatory for uncleansed sin. Now, this is what David Anderson says on the subject. When Augustine changed his eschatology, it affected his soteriology drastically. In Matthew 24, 13, regarding perseverance in the faith to the end of one's physical life as a requirement for eternal salvation, became the cornerstone of his salvific system. Pur purgatory developed as a figment of his logic based on 24.13, what to do if one does persevere to the end of his life uh, in the faith but still has vestiges of sin in his character, and voila, you get purgatory. So the Roman Catholic Church bought into Augustine's theory, uh, his theology, both in terms of their eschatology and soteriology. Through this lifelong process, Augustine thought God could transform the inner man from one of lust to one of love, believed the good works of a person were meritorious. But like so many who admit to such a view, he taught at the same time that all meritorious works of man were the product of God's grace. Now, that should sound familiar because Matthew just mentioned that. He also believed that if the love of God were perfected in this life, a person would go directly to heaven without spending any time in purgatory. If, if such perfection were not reached, the sufferings of purgatory were necessary to prepare one for heaven. 
and you'll see that in David Anderson's Free Grace Theology of the Third Edition on page 22. I like what Richard Jones says in, in his Understanding Catholicism summed up in this one comment. Is it unreasonable to ask where a group of men got their information about the afterlife to formulate such a doctrine? And he goes on and says, My Roman Catholic friend, if you are praying for loved ones you believe are in purgatory, you need to be aware that God did not tell you that they, uh, that they were there. A group of religious leaders did. And he goes on to say, But at that present time, some of his disciples are pilgrims on earth. Others have died and are being purified, while still others are in glory. And you'll find that in footnote 954 in his book, Understanding Roman Catholicism. So uh, I do want to give a quotation from Dr. Scott Smith, who says this about penal substitution as it's related to uh, purgatory. He says, the very label penal substitution designates two things. One, the atonement is related to law, specifically to penalty violation some law. And two, the escape from penalty is Christ's substitution for the one under penalty. Proponents of legal uh, substitutionary atonement all hold that Christ himself voluntarily suffered the consequence, demanded for sin, and he did so in the place of either some or all of those to whom the consequence was due. The consequence may be pictured as a curse or penalty, but despite the term, the issue of legality is uh, pivotal. So we go on, and I, I want to quote what Catholic apologist John Salza says regarding what purgatory is exactly. He says, The word purgatory comes from the Latin purgare, which means to purge, purify. Or make clean. The church teaches that it is a place or condition of temporal punishment for departed souls who are destined for heaven but not completely purified from sin. Uh, through this purgative process, uh, spiritual uh, contamination is removed and the soul is made wholly pleasing to God so it can live forever with him in heaven. And you'll see that in his biblical basis of pur pur purgatory on pages 15 and 16. Now, the Catholic pur purgatory, is, as Keith Krell notes, that the Roman Catholic notion that refers to purgatory is not valid for several reasons. He says this, uh, Roman Catholic scholars, or another era, uh, have interpreted the fire as a purging fire that the worker must encounter in purgatory. Certain factors argue against the idea of purgatory from the usage of fire in 1 Corinthians 3.13.15. Number one, the purpose of the fire is not to purge, but to test for reward. The saved were already cleansed through the blood of Christ. The fire that tests the work is not aimed at improving the character. Number two, the punishment is in view. No punishment is in view. Christ bore all the punishment for every believer, Romans 8.1. His judgment of the saved is to reward for good and diminish reward, not to condemn for bad. Number three, five, uh, fire here affects all who, do, uh, all who do work on the true foundation. It is not exclusively for work that it is worthless. Number four, the text does not teach explicitly or implicitly a remission of sins at this testing. It does not deal with changing a person's lot, but revealing it, 1 Corinthians 3.13. There's no suggestion of a later improvement after death in a purgatorial fire. Contemporary exegetical warrant was developed at a much later time in the history of Christianity, which you'll see in his book, Temporal Punishment in the Church, Paul's Remedial Agenda in 1 Corinthians. Now, um, we'll, we'll go on to talk about destruction and loss of reward as I get into my rebuttal time. Uh, but for time's sake, I think that's going to wrap it up for me, and I will turn it back to Matthew for his uh, rebuttal, which I believe, let me see, is going to be seven minutes. So let me get the camera to you, and I'll reset this clock here for seven minutes. So whenever you're ready. Okay, sure. Uh, once again, I'm not sure if maybe perhaps Josh was not listening or perhaps just uh, 
I like Josh very much. I, I don't mean to imply that. But when Josh says the Catholic, the Catholic, the Catholic, I'm one of those Catholics that he may be referencing. So once again, the church teaches and is always taught we are saved by God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. But Josh teaches, to me, a different gospel. Josh teaches that Jesus Christ took on all our punishments, every single punishment. But Jesus Christ himself says in Luke 12, to the servant who knows the will of God but does not do it, shall be severely punished. Josh says that's not true. I'm going to go with Jesus Christ on this. Jesus says the servant of God who knows the will but does not do it, does not act in authority, shall be severely punished. Josh tells Jesus that's not true. Uh, Jesus says to the servant of God who is ignorant of the will of the Father at that time but doesn't act in accordance, shall still be punished, but not as severely as the one who does. So there's punishments right there, but Josh doesn't believe uh, what Jesus is saying. I'm going to believe what Jesus is saying. Uh, Matthew 18, 34, 35, we have servants of God. He's forgiven, but does not forgive. And what happens? He's thrown into that temporary prison, and there's uh, an infliction of, of punishment. And he says, so too will my heavenly Father do to you. But Josh says to Jesus, that's not true. Um, that's just not true. So I'm going to again go with Jesus on this one. I don't mean to bring this up against Josh, but maybe it's other Protestants as well, who denies what Jesus has is, Jesus is taught. Again, Eternal and temporal punishments. Uh, you have to please give me an indication at what point temporal punishments are done away with. Because Jesus Christ himself, in regards to indulgences, Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Again, uh, I don't mean to use Josh's name. I'll just say in general, the Protestant pastor. The Protestant pastor does, maybe not Josh, but different Protestant pastors, uh, does not believe Jesus Christ. For some reason, a lot of Protestant pastors do not believe whatever Jesus teaches. They just don't like what he teaches. Um, Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Jesus is regarding temporal punishments. Jesus is going to uh, the book of Sirach, where it says, uh, give alms as water extinguishes a fire, so does the giving of alms atone for sins. That goes back to the book of Daniel, which is in the uh, Protestants, uh, uh, where it says, um, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6 says, by obedience and loyalty is sin atoned for, by obedience and loyalty. So we have so many references to the Jewish understanding of temporal and eternal punishments. And there's something that we can do and that we must do to atone for those eternal punishments. I'm not eternal. Christ atoned for the eternal punishments. And again, that's what the Catholic Church has always taught. The Catholic Church has always taught and will continue to teach. Whoever teaches that the Catholic Church says that we can do something um, to save ourselves apart from God's grace is absolutely true, is absolutely false, because it's true that God's grace saves, his blood saves. But in terms of we need to cooperate with God's saving grace, we have to forgive, uh, we have to uh, show mercy. Uh, and Jesus does reward in the law of grace, he says, to those who show mercy, your works, as a result of your works, mercy shall be shown you. Something we can do, and that's why uh, faith alone is a man-made tradition. Paul says, even if one has all faith but does not love, it's useless. Again, many Protestant pastors don't like that Paul said that. They don't like certain times that Paul speaks. Paul talks about in Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, uh, Hebrews 10 or 26. I'm not sure if Paul wrote Hebrews, but Romans 11. Paul warns baptized Christians, if you persist in immorality and purity, and don't repent, you're not going to enter the kingdom. 
you're not even going to enter the kingdom. Protestant pastors don't like that. Um, but purgatory is, is for the one who is saved by God's grace, but um, has not atoned for those temporal punishments. Peter says, love one another, for love covers the multitude of your sins. Protestant pastors don't like that. They don't like the fact that we can atone for the temporal punishments and that we must atone for the temporal punishments. Um, the book of Hebrews says we must all strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So um, many Protestant pastors always just talk about rewards, rewards, rewards. They never talk about punishments. They don't like to talk about punishments. They kind of white out those passages. Um, but I, I can, as a Catholic Christian, I, I have to, um, I have to uh, take all God's word, written and oral. Um, and it wasn't just St. Augustine who confirmed the divine reality of purgatory. It was Tertullian. Um, it was Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, Basil, Ambrose, um, John Chrysostom, um, Athanasius. They all talked about purging fires, and there's something that we can do. We can pray for the dead. We can even atone uh, somehow for them by prayers. Uh, Paul himself, in his letter to Timothy, says, uh, in reference to Anasaphorus, who had passed away, uh, says, uh, may, may God have mercy on him. Why is Paul asking God to have mercy on a Christian? Isn't he already saved? Is he always perfect already and rewarded in God's eyes? But uh, that's not true in one sense, because that's not the gospel of Christ. Uh, the gospel of Christ talks about accountability. It talks about punishments for, um, for those who are not really good at God. But I think that's my time. Awesome. Yeah, that was actually perfect. So perfect timing. Let me get the camera back to me. I'll put the clock up for seven minutes. And oop. set to one minute there. Okay. So awesome. So um, yeah, thank you for that rebuttal. There were some good points that you made and hopefully we'll get a chance to address those. Uh, for my rebuttal, I'm going to spend uh, my time just going through what you, what you said in your opening statement. And there was one point that you made in this uh, rebuttal that maybe if I have time, I'll get to that. But the first point that you say um, in your opening statement that really stuck out to me was you said Jesus paid for the eternal pen penalty for our sins, but not for the temporal. And I, I think that this can be summed up in one of the last statements that you made. Um, the last statement that you made in your opening statement where you said, if I have not atoned for the sin of sarcasm or any imperfections in this life, I will end the purgatorial fires which punish uh, but transform me so I can enter heaven in the presence of God. And then you began your rebuttal period with this comment. I believe Josh teaches a different gospel because he believes Jesus paid the penalty for all our sins, even the temporal punishments. And I think that those three quotations together can pretty much sum up any argument that we're going to make here today for the necessity of purgatorial fires because we are very, very clearly teaching two different gospels. One gospel is teaching the full and complete payment made by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ of which no man is capable of making. And that would be a payment that only God can come down and make for man as man. And that's exactly what I believe happened, and that's the gospel that I believe. I believe that the, the punishment, the penalty for sin, was literally placed on my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he took and bore all of my sins, past, present, and future. And, uh, and they were placed on Christ, and the righteousness of Christ is what I need 
in order to stand before God and enter heaven, not in a, a, a sense of me entering heaven through the cleansing of my own sins myself, but through this, the sins having been cleansed by God himself. And the presence of me before a holy and perfect God who will not allow that which is corruptible to stand before him must be in an incorruptible sense. And if you remember in 1 Peter, it talks about the, the, the man of God being born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed. And that seed is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the necessity of the purgatorial fires being essential to the Catholic faith, they are essential to the Catholic faith for the very simple fact that the Catholic believes that you have to atone for any sins that Christ did not atone for. In fact, what, what the Catholic believes is that your justification is only good enough through the work of Christ to give you initial justification through the, the waters of baptism, and that anything on top of that that follows that is something that God gives you by his grace in order for you to have the works, for God to look at your works and to justify you based off your own works. Now, this is clearly different from the gospel that I am preaching. I'm preaching that your works are completely separate from your justification. They follow your justification as a part of your sanctification. And when I say the Catholic, I'm saying the Catholic and as referenced anyone who believes the dogmas of the Catholic Church and the catechisms of the Catholic Church or the Council of Nicaea and their, their teachings on, say, the purgatorial fires or justification by faith or any of the anathemas against people like me who believe contrary to those things. So in essence, um, I'm, I'm glad that Matthew brought up the differences that we've got because I don't have any animosity toward, towards him. I know that he doesn't as well. But we do believe um, very strongly that the two of us are definitely preaching two different gospels. One gospel says it's the work of Christ. One gospel says it began with the work of Christ and it ultimately ends with your presence before Christ as some, uh, through your own works and cleansing through the purgatorial fires in order to present you before a holy God when you have not fully been cleansed by the work of God. So, now the second point that you made is um, regarding David. You say that David paid for his sins and was punished. Therefore, this equals purgatory. Now, that last that last point isn't what you said. I, I added that in there. Therefore, this equals purgatory. And and typically, um, this example, which Robertson Janus used in, in his debate against James White as well, saying, well, David... David had three choices given by God to pay for um, some sins that, that he did with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, the Hittite. So you, you've got adultery and you've got murder, two mortal sins that the Catholic would, would typically say are something that you, you can't, they, they cannot be paid for, um, it, which I'm not sure exactly how that would relate to purgatory and the cleansing fires relating mortal sin because it, it seems like typically those are just venial sins that are paid for in purgatory, but that maybe that's something we'll get to. So anyways, my point is this. St. Genis and Matthew Broderick are both using the example of David's punishment for his sins in this life with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and losing his son and uh, the payment that, that he had to pay and, and as a consequence of his sin and, and God giving him, the, him the, the, the option to go before his enemies um, to, I can't remember the second option, but the third option was for God to give him a punishment of his own. And that was to lose his firstborn son, which which, which ended up happening. But um, his punishment, guys, keep in mind that punishment was in this life. It was not in the next. Now, Catholics are using this as an example to say, well, there are temporal punishments 
that will be paid in the next life based off of what happens in the story with David and Uriah and Bathsheba and his son. And we, we're taking a step back and going, whoa, listen, like there's some major eisegesis going into what's happening here. You are reading purgatorial fires in, from the next life for sins that are not cleansed in this life in order for you to enter the present, presence of heaven through the story of David. And, and if anything, what that shows you is the example of a son of God and the promise of Hebrews 13, which shows um, that for those whom God loves, he chastens. It's the chastening of a son. And that's, that's where we talk about the three different judgments of a Christian. Before you get saved, you're judged as a sinner. When you do get saved, you're judged as a son in this life, which results in the chastening of the son in this life. If you don't have the chastening of God in your life, the Bible says that you're a bastard. You're not even a son of God. You're pretending. Uh, and then the final judgment for the Christian is going to be the judgment seat of Christ for your rewards. Um, not as a sinner or a son, but as a servant for the work that you did for Christ based off of your motive of heart. So with that said, we're going to transition now into cross-examination. So um, you had your opening. I should, I, I would think that I'll go with my cross-examination time for you on this, but what do you think? Well, that's fine. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, and we've got, I believe it's 15 minutes. Is that right? Yeah, I might have about 10 minutes in mind. Okay. Okay, so let me get to my questions. Okay, so now regarding um, kind of the definition of purgatory, I think this is kind of essential to establishing the, the grounds for what, what you as a Catholic would b believe regarding purgatory. So um, typically you hear a number of different things, whether it's a place or whether it's a state. Uh, what exactly is purgatory? Is it a place, or is it a state of being, or is it some other sort of description? What is purgatory? Um, it's 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 hard to uh, it's hard it's it's very hard to express, and and some people may say, well, that's that that means it's not a reality. It's hard to express, but the same could be applied to the Trinity. How do you explain the Trinity? Uh, but the Trinity is also in Scripture, but it's so hard. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit is seen as a force. As um, as the breath of God, but in one sense, the Holy Spirit is equal to God, the Father and Son has to be equal to. But it's not very clear in Holy Scripture; it doesn't say that. But there's implications of that. Same to purgatory, um, the the fires where Paul himself says that some, after death, shall suffer loss. So we have a Christian who suffers loss. But why does a Christian suffer loss when Jesus Christ took on all our losses on the cross? Jesus Christ took on all our losses. But apparently, we too will suffer loss. But that okay. Yeah. But I mean, well, I think Pope Benedict describes it the best when he says that purgatory is Christ himself. That, that, that consuming fire who both punishes but transforms. Because we have, again, that understanding where... Jesus Christ himself talks about the servant of God gets punished. And it's a discipline, but it's punishment. We have to understand yeah. punishment is there by Christ okay. himself. Um, okay, so let me, uh, and we'll get to 1 Corinthians 3, but let me ask you this. Who sends people to purgatory? Um, I, I think it's just uh, the when we die, after death comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Second uh, Corinthians five. This is another reference to um, Christians or those who are saved by the grace of God, even even 
last minute people who uh, are not baptized or you know Jesus says you must be baptized but some are not baptized but they have that baptism of desire they have that yeah. repentance so second uh, five we have people who are saved but they're being punished well with respect but um, with respect I, I'm I've got a ton of questions let me um, can you just tell me who sends Sorry. who sends them there well I mean I, I think in one sense it's 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 their own it's 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 the they it's the accountability um, God like God reveals to them God illuminates their, their state of their soul so second Corinthians 5 10 says we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive recompense for the good but also punished for the bad. We're going to be punished for the bad, so that confirms that the Christian is punished. It's not just rewarded, there's a punishment. So I think the um, one sense, do we really know what happens in the afterlife? I think is that um, God illuminates, that that fire is the consumed fire that both transforms, illuminates, and punishes. But it's, you know, like God reveals the state of our soul. Okay, so are you saying that um, you as a Catholic, you believe that, that when you die... You stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that judgment results in you going to purgatory. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Or that judgment could be itself purgatory itself. Okay, so the they're atoning for their sins as a result of a judgment, not as uh, not as a means by standing before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the other way around. Is that right? Yeah. First, like I said before, a Catholic Church is always always teaching. It's God's saving grace, his blood that atoned for the eternal punishment. But like the only reason we bring up David is because several references to David was David was forgiven, King David he was forgiven, but he was punished. He was forgiven and punished, but that's temporal punishment. That means there's accountability for the there's accountability for the punishment. Uh, for the sin. That's what that's what temp, that's why Robertson Genesis, I thought he did so excellently. He performed since David was forgiven, but he was punished. In several circumstances, not just the adultery and murder, but when he um, uh, numbered his men. Right. So, so, that so with regard to David, and, and I'll come back to that line of question. With regard to David, you would agree that happened in, in his lifetime, right? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. So how do, you, how do you get from a punishment that happened in his lifetime to now you get purgatory? Well, it's very easily. Uh, I, I think, and I was going to, uh, maybe, I don't know, feel bad I was going <laughs> to ask you this question. A lot of Protestants believe that they need sanctification. For some reason, that sanctification doesn't take place through faith alone. That they need to be, I'm not even sure what the Protestant understanding of sanctification is. But if a Protestant believes they need to be sanctified over their course of their life, what happens if in five seconds they die of a heart attack, but they're not sanctified yet? So what happens? They need that yeah. sanctification, and if it doesn't take place in this life, if there's no cleansing, if there's no purification, if there's no temporal discipline from the, from the Father, yeah. which was for, they need to still undergo, like many, many, like you know, C.S. Lewis, who was a, not even a Protestant, he was not even a Catholic, understood that biblical basis for purgatory was, if I need to be sanctified here, and it doesn't happen right away, like, I mean, there's no, I mean, and that's why, like I said, it wasn't just St. Augustine, it was Tertullian, Origin, Ambrose, yeah. um, Goldtwatt. So, so it, you would say that it's, an, it's just a logical um, assumption that if you haven't been fully sanctified in this life and sanctification is necessary for entering the presence of God and you die in some venial sins that uh, would result in not being fully sanctified, that those 
those still need to be atoned for because they're not covered by the atonement of Christ. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's just the most important yeah. thing. Is because that's what Christians believe in eternal punishment and temporal. Christ alone took on our eternal punishment. But temporal punishment is exactly what happened to King David. I see. In, both, in both situations, he was forgiven, but in both situations, he was punished. Yeah. Now, if you look at what Jesus Christ himself taught in Matthew 5, he says, to those among you, when he's talking to believers, those among you who are angry with your brother, you should be liable to judgment. But why will I be liable to judgment when Christ was already judged for me on the cross? Why would why will I be held to, if I'm if I'm angry with my brother and I die in that anger in my heart? Um, many many Protestants believe it doesn't matter. You're still going to be declared righteous. So we have someone who's yeah. in heaven, but he's still angry. Okay, so that understand. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, so that'll that'll transition into my next point, and this is kind of a. Um, I've got a, an, another a, a line of questioning that's that's really kind of driven towards nailing down what I believe to show the uh, unscriptural perspectives of purgatory. But I think that rather what I'm going to do is kind of veer away from that and show um, what I believe is what what we just agreed on is the main difference. Is you believe that sanctification is essential for final justification before, which essentially means you can't stand before the presence of God without being fully sanctified, which includes your own works. You have to do, you have to essentially um, have works that are meet for, um, that are, that are, that are congruent for you standing before God and his, and being in his presence. And if you die in, in sins that haven't been paid for yet, you essentially have to do the time to pay for the crime um, until they are paid for. So I think that ultimately you and I would see a distinction between justification and salvation where you say, um, sanctification is part of justification, and I'm drawing a distinction saying sanctification is plays a role in your rewards, not in your justification or your salvation. Do you see the difference that we have between our two views here? I, I know we definitely have a difference. Yeah. I think as a Catholic Christian, I try to, like I said, it's I try to focus so much on what Jesus Christ taught, right. who was the eternal word. When Jesus Christ says, if we do not forgive, to the servant who does not forgive, you shall not be forgiven. And you should be punished. If you're a servant and you hope in God and you, you know, but you still have that, you know, before you die and you did not forgive, Jesus says, shall be thrown into the prison and shall be punished. And he says, so too will my heavenly father do to you. Now, a lot of Protestant pastors will try to say, well, uh, that's just, um, the father will only do that while someone's alive on earth. Jesus never said that. Jesus is always talking about judgment. So if judgment takes place and there's a servant who does not forgive, um, according to the Protestant pastor, the person is still declared innocent, even though he hasn't forgiven. But according to Jesus, he's not declared innocent. He's punished. I mean, he's perhaps saved if he's, if he's um, hoped in the kindness of God. But if he hasn't forgiven his brother yeah. in the heart, Jesus says, go to my heavenly father, throw you into that prison where there's a temporary... Uh, punishment but there's a release so, so that's, that's where we have to understand that sanctification is we have to like hebrews 12 14 says we have to all strive for that holiness without which we will not see the lord so that holiness has to be sorry you go ahead i'm sorry i don't want to <laughs> all right so you used um matthew 5 as an example of someone working for their final justification their salvation is and and obviously you're tying that into the idea of purgatory but do you do you see where I'm, I'm getting the idea of 
the judgment of the believer in the judgment seat of Christ rewarding re, resulting in a reward rather of of um, and their inheritance rather than their salvation. For example, in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So how would you, how would you interpret that when the context seems to be a reference to the reward of the believer as, a, as opposite, in opposition to the salvation of the believer? So sorry to interrupt you. I apologize. Sorry. I was referencing Matthew 18, 34, 35. Oh, I you see. Matthew, I thought you said. Oh, I may have, oh I'm sorry. Matthew <laughs> 5, I mentioned earlier about the, uh, about will not be uh, forgiven, uh, will not be let out until all the debts are paid. And yeah, and may, let's get, let's see if we can get, maybe that's something you'll bring up in your questioning. Um, I don't really have that lined up for this, this round, but, um, I'll, and I'll be more than happy to give my exp explanation on that. But I, I think the idea here can be summed up. You believe that you are atoning for your temporal sins that were not, uh, forgiven in this lifetime uh, in purgatory. Is that correct? No, they, they have been forgiven. Like similar to David, if we if we ask God for forgiveness. But like David asked God for forgiveness, he was forgiven, but he was punished. That's the, that's the, that's the main understanding of not just David. There's several references to, um, you know, the book of Daniel, the book of Proverbs, that we can atone for the temporal punishment uh, because that's the, the main difference between the Catholic and Protestant understanding is with with sin, there's two consequences, eternal and temporal. Jesus Christ, who is God, God made man, the beautiful, kind Savior and, and um, creator of the world, he took on um, flesh and he atoned for the eternal punishment. But we still have to atone for the temporal punishment. Yeah. Um, and that's why, um, you know, Jesus Christ himself says, uh, give alms and all shall be clean within you. So, um, Let's talk about the work of Jesus for a second. When, when, when we talk about the atonement of Christ and the propitiation of Christ and the, redemption, the redemptive work of Christ and the, the, the substitution, Christ being our substitute, and him paying the penalty for our sins in Romans 8.30, what do you think... What do you think uh, about the work of Christ that was done that would result in something left over for you to do in, in purgatory? Why do you see a necessity for you to pay for sins that Christ didn't? Um, because as a Catholic Christian, I, 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 can't, I can't let go of sacred scripture and, and tradition. Uh, again, here we have Jesus Christ, who is God the eternal Son, who took on the eternal punishment but Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 18, 34, 35, if you do not forgive, neither will you be forgiven. You'll be thrown into that temporary prison and be punished. My Father will do the same to you. Now, to the Protestant, they don't like that passage. They just don't like the fact that there's a punishment. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, uh, we will receive recompense for the good, but also punished for the bad that we've done in the body. A lot of Protestant pastors don't really know what to do with those passages. They love to do, they love to talk about rewards. They love to but when it comes to punishments for the servant of God, they don't like that. And I think that's why, because they deny temporal punishment. And I think that's why, um, you know, Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He's talking about the need to cooperate with God's saving grace. We can't atone for the eternal punishment. Christ himself did that on the cross. His, his blood alone is what we hope for. All right, so, 
Oh, go ahead. Okay, I've got, um, there's 40 seconds left. I'll end with this final question, and then I'll pick this up in our next round. In Hebrews 7, um, Hebrews 7, verses, I'll start in verse 22. It says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, they truly were many priests, but because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man, because he continued forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. They come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What do you make of uh, verse 25, where he is able to save them to the uttermost? They come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. And I know we're out of time, but I'll, I'll give you time to answer that since we got it in before that clock was up. <laughs> no, that, that, that's fine. I mean, I, I think God, in his, you know, his blood, the power of his blood, the most precious blood, and the power of his kind, the kindness of his heart. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to even save, you know, atheists, Muslims, Hindus. He died for all humanity. But what God needs from us is that we love one another, and that we repent of our sins, you know, and that we hope in his kindness. He's able to save anyone. But the thing is, sometimes, like if you're on a, if, if, if there's a, uh, you're on a boat, and the boat, you know, uh, somehow or another, there's trouble with the boat, and people are on the water. Um, the people can reach out to save you, but if you don't want to be saved, um, it's not it's not the fault of the person who's putting his arm out. It's the fault of the person who's not putting his arm up. And I think God can save to the uttermost. Um, he can. He can save every one of those people in the ocean. Um, but if not everyone's putting their arms up, um, then, then it's 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 their it's their free will that they've chosen not to accept God's saving grace. But I think, like again, if if, if I'm saved, um, it's by the blood of Christ. Um, but if I have not forgiven, and if I'm a servant of God, but if I have not forgiven, or if I have anger in my heart. Jesus Christ says there's going to be punishment for that. There's going to be a punishment. We have to atone for that punishment. We can do that on earth. Jesus Christ himself says, give alms, and all shall be clean within you. Um, there are certain things, like, again, it, it all starts with the uh, eternal and temporal punishment. Okay, um, so we've got 15 minutes. Let me, I'll start the clock whenever you begin your questioning. Now, I, I think, um, I think for me, I have a couple of questions for you, but I, I think, I, I don't know, to some degree, I think sometimes we may have a, uh, we're in unison in one sense, but maybe the way it's executed is quite differently. Um, I, can you please explain to me, uh, Josh, the loss of rewards? Yes. Why is loss of rewards based on something we do or don't do? Dude, that is a great question. Um, let me get to, okay, so 1 Corinthians 3, I think, is going to be our go-to passage here and I'm going to read it and then I'll 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 answer it so it's it starts in I obviously it's going to go back to verse verse 1 but for the sake of time I don't have to re time to read it all let me start in verse 11 for other foundation can no man lay that which is laid which is Jesus Christ now if any man build upon this foundation gold silver precious stones wood hay stubble every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be received by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon he shall receive a reward if any man's work shall be burned he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire know you not that you're the temple of god and the spirit of god dwelt in you now he talks about the 
If any man defiles this temple of God, he shall destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So those are the main passages, 10 through 17. You've got, an, you've got a number of ideas being communicated here. One is the foundation, Jesus Christ. No one can lay that foundation. This is going to be the foundation by which our faith is built upon, the work of Christ. Okay, so this is what we call justification for the Christian. The justification of the Christian is not the works of the Christian. This is going to be the foundation of the works of Christ, which is, uh, which is us placing our faith in Christ, which is our faith in his faith. We're saved from faith to faith, our faith to the faith of Christ. And um, what, what happens when you are born again, uh, when you believe in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says um, that the, you're, you believe first, that the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, and that you're regenerated, Titus 3.15. That would be a reference to being born again. Uh, but what happens at that point of being born again is you've got the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to you. Uh, you'll see this in Romans 8, 29 and 30. You'll see this in uh, Romans, I think it's 5, 1. But, but, uh, so this is going to be your foundation. This will be your justification. No one can build on justification. What you're building on is your, the sanctification. This is going to be the work of the Christian. The gold, silver, and precious stones, these are going to be things that, that um, when tried by fire, they survive fire. And um, the, 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 the gold is going to represent the deity of Christ. The silver is going to represent the price of redemption. The precious stones are going to represent uh, the, the, the people that you've witnessed, the gospel that you've presented, the work that you've built into people. The precious stones, the Bible says um, that you are lively stones in First Peter. Those would be precious stones, the, the people that you've invested the gospel into. The wood, hay, and stubble are going to be temporal things. Wood is going to be dead trees. Stubble is going to be dead. Hay is going to be dead grass. Stubble is going to be a bunch of dead everything. Um, so it's dead stuff that you build on. Wood um, is going to be, quite obviously, it's going to be the things that are contrasted between spirit and flesh. So when we talk about the work of the spirit and the flesh, Romans 7, 1, Romans 8, 1, um, those, those two chapters are going to deal with the differences between the flesh and the spirit. And when we, we, when we talk about this work going through the fire, the fire quite, um, uh, quite probab probabilistically, I think, I, I would agree with you. I think that this is probably going to be uh, the, the presence of God as a consuming fire. So the consuming fire would, would be what consumes uh, the works that go through this. Obviously, we've got a difference between what's being burned here you as a Catholic would say that the man is being tried and his works are being purified and this could take time. Um, I'm saying as, as a free grace believer that what happens is when the Christian stands before the judgment seat of Christ, you're literally standing before God and, and the consuming fire is consuming the motives behind your work, which is going to be why it, the, uh, which is going to be um, where we get the idea of the motives being tried behind the work. So it's the work, but it's the motives also. Like you can do something good for God, but if you have the wrong attitude about it, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It's going to burn at the judgment seat of Christ. So when we talk about the judgments, I know I'm giving a long answer here, but there's there's three main points. Um, you've got the foundation as your justification. You've got the sanctification being your works, and you've got the modification being what sort of work it is. Okay, but then you've got the idea that um, the man is going to be saved, yet so as by fire. All right, and you've got the idea of Daniel, or not Daniel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in, in the fiery furnace. 
I think this is a great picture of what happens in the judgment seat of Christ. You've got Christ as our advocate who's standing there with us through the protection of the fires that would consume them if it wasn't for the intervention of God. All right, so obviously the ropes were burned off. Um, they were not harmed. The Christian is going to be um, the the Christian is going to be essentially bound by the ropes of the dead works that go into that fire with them. And and what happens is those ropes are burned off, and all that's left is the pure gold, silver, and precious stones. And those are probably what is used for the Christian as a result of the five crowns that are mentioned throughout the Bible as the material to build for their reward. Not only that, but the righteousness of Christ being the, the, the clothing that is literally given to the Christian in opposition to people who show up naked at the judgment seat of Christ. So there's some people who come out of the judgment seat of Christ completely naked, destitute, without anything, no reward. They come out with shame, and they're ashamed as... Uh, Matthew Mark 8, which I read earlier, is a reference to some people who are ashamed of God in this life, and God is ashamed of them in the next. So the work that a Christian does are essential for something, but it's not for their salvation, because that salvation is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which no man can lay than that which is laid. And that's why I brought up uh, Hebrews 7, because Hebrews 7 is directly related back to the atonement, showing that He's able to save to the uttermost, which you agree with. So he's able to, but for whatever reason, he doesn't within your perspective because there's some examination of your works that, that you're taking into account that the, I don't see the Bible doing for your salvation anyways. Well, no, I, I definitely, like I said, I don't know, maybe, uh, I'm going to exaggerate here. <laughs> I said 200 times, <laughs> I, which I, I didn't. I think I said like 10 times. That it's God's saving grace. Right. God's Jesus saves. But purgatory, in a sense, you just kind of confirmed that it's our works for sanctification. It's and for those of you who there's a loss of rewards, uh, you know, apparently I understand you use the um it's actually like a I think that was a beautiful uh, understanding. I think of what you talked about the uh, uh, the three men. I can't pronounce their names. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not sure if I even pronounced it right. But that's a, that's their Babylonian names, so that's not even the Hebrew names. I thought that was beautiful, one like the Son of Man. But in one sense, the difference between that is, of those three people in that fire, you have some having greater rewards and some having a loss of rewards. And it's based on what they've done in this life or what they haven't done. And I think that's exactly what Christ told us. That's exactly what the Catholic Church confirms, that God saves. God, God can save to the uttermost. Like I said, but for those who don't reach out to him, it's not God who has failed. It's, it's someone who hasn't reached out to him. But purgatory is not a condemnation. Purgatory is a cleansing. It's, it's an illumination. Um, of, you know, Hebrews 12 says we all have to strive for that holiness without which we won't see God. So there has to be some cooperation on our part. Um, and if those works that Paul talks about, um, similar to Malachi 3, where he talks about refining, um, it's about, uh, you know, it talks about gold and silver, same used as Malachi 3, but it refines, it purifies. So purify, like I said, so if I have sarcasm in my heart, if I've been sarcastic to some people, and I die with sarcasm in my heart, um, that sarcasm has to be purified. I mean, I can't be in the presence of the all-holy and all-perfect God who saved me, um, if I'm still sarcastic in my heart, if I haven't, you know, it's, I'm not declared righteous. The Catholic Church has it 
where the biblical understanding and the sacred tradition is that one is made righteous by the purifying fire that uh, Pope Benedict talks about, who both punishes but transforms. The punishment is is due to the temporal punishment due to sin. If I'm sarcastic. If Jesus says to those of you who are angry, you shall be liable to judgment. Many Protestant pastors don't like that. They say, well, that doesn't apply to the believer. Jesus never said that. He says, if you're angry on judgment day, if you haven't, uh, you know, if you're still angry in your heart, you can still be Christian. You can still be angry. I, you know, we get angry sometimes, but we still we may die. In so it well, let me point something out on that, on what you just said, if I could. Um, one, one of the, so I'm a big proponent of, um, of the TR versus the critical text or, or, or the Catholic text behind the translations that we've got. And a lot of the modern, a lot of translations typically today will say that um, if you're if you're angry, that that would result in in sin. But but the TR goes goes to great lengths to draw the distinction um, that you you can be angry and be a sinner. But if you're if you're if you're angry without a cause, that would be the distinction that's made to make it sin. So when we see that reference that you were talking about. Of, of being angry and standing before the judgment you you take that and compare that to the anger of Jesus Christ and you've got you've got a sinner Jesus Christ based off of that translation but but the the problem with the the problem obviously is going to be with being without a cause so when we, we we see those who are being judged for their anger obviously you've got a distinction that's not really relevant to this discussion regarding without a cause but what I would say is and those who are being judged for not forgiving, I think, is going to be a major distinction in how we interpret that passage. You, as a Catholic, me as a free grace adherent, being being that the, the context is going to be regarding um, regarding fellowship of brothers within in Christ. I think that this is this is going to be something that that is is essential to that context. So, not saying that if 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 you don't forgive someone else, you're not going to be forgiven, and therefore you're going to have to atone for your sins in purgatory in order to be forgiven, because I don't even think you're saying that. I, and maybe this is something you could clarify for me, because you, you, it seems like you told me, well, you are forgiven your sins. Christ did forgive your sins at the cross, but not all of your sins have been atoned, uh, have been paid for. There's a punishment for your sins. So, so I, I think the struggle that I would have is seeing the difference between the forgiveness and the punishment and what you're describing as being necessary, necessary to be atoned for in purgatory there. Sure. Like, Well, I definitely don't relate the anger that Christ talks about to his anger. He's holy and he's innocent. Christ is talking about those who are angry with their brother, they should be liable to judgment. He didn't say, look, if you're angry, he didn't, he didn't distinguish in one sense. Yes, definitely there's, there's, there's holy anger. If, you know, if someone, I think, you know, to mean if someone, you know, does something to a church, vandalizes a church, it's like anger there. Yeah. You know, that's that's not what Christ is talking about. Christ is talking about, he goes with your with your brother. If your brother and, and you, if you're both, you know, if you're Christian, if you get angry with your brother because what he does, and you don't you don't talk to him, you give him the shoulder, you give him the silent treatment, that anger that you have is not Christian. You know, and um, you could still be saved, but you could still have that um, but the biggest distinguishment, distinguishing factor is is for consequences to sin, there's two. There's always been two, eternal and temporal. David was forgiven, but he was punished in both situations. 
Um, and that's exactly why we have Jesus saying, give alms and all shall be clean within you. And a lot of Protestant pastors don't like that. They're like, Jesus, why do you just talk like that? We can't do anything to, to atone, to make us clean within. We can do something to make us clean within. Uh, Peter himself says, love one another, for love covers a multitude of your sins. So Peter's saying that what we can do can atone for the temporal punishment due our sins. And that's why because of, of sin, we can't atone for the eternal punishment. Christ did that on the cross. But if we stand before Christ after death, we die with anger in our heart. If we die without forgiving our brother, we can't just be declared righteous because of back in 1982, I said, God is my savior. We have to stand before the consuming fire who illuminates that anger, who transforms that anger and makes us pure where that anger is gone. So I can't, uh, that's the difference between the Protestant and the Catholic understanding is, you know, the Protestant has it where there's somebody who's in heaven, he's still angry at his brother, but he's declared righteous. And the difference between a Catholic understanding is that person has been saved by Christ, but if he is not atoned for that temporal punishment, if he's not asked for forgiveness, um, and he's not atoned for it by our love for one another, by giving alms, by showing mercy, uh, to atone for the temporal punishment, uh, which is indeed a reality, um, that we have to be um, transformed, we have to be purified. Paul talks about it in his, in his uh, letter to the Corinthians, that some will be punished um, and some will be transformed. And I think we need to be transformed, uh, not just declared innocent with anger in our heart. We have to have that in, that anger still um, taken away before we get into the presence of God. Uh, maybe one or two more quick questions, and then maybe we'll go to the rebuttal. I guess if that's, if that's all right. I don't know how much time I have. Um, um, we actually just ran out of time, um, but there's another okay. round of cross-examination that we've got coming up right now, if that's all right with you. And if you wanted more time for that, I'm totally cool to get, if we... I forgot timing, I apologize, was, I, I get <laughs> with, uh, confused with all that. I was, you know what it's no like, so, um, so how much time on this one, sorry? Um, so we've got seven minutes for this second round each, and this will be my turn, and then I'll, and then it'll be your, yours, the second round there, so. Okay, so let me kind of follow up on where we were just at. Uh, you talked about Malachi and you talked about David regarding the difference between forgiveness and punishment. You're saying, well, God forgave David, but he punished David. Can you tell me when God forgave David and when God punished David? And what was it regarding? Was it regarding his salvation? Was it regarding what? What was it? Uh, it was regarding his free will to um, disobey uh, God. Uh, and uh, he took for his wife uh, Bathsheba uh, with adultery and, uh, and murder. Uh, so he, he was punished. Uh, he was forgiven because God knows his heart. And I think that's referenced in, uh, I think it's Psalm 51, um, where David talks about... Um, have mercy on me, oh God, um, for what I've done. So he was, that's, I think, the greatest distinguishing point between punishment that many, I think, Protestant pastors just disregard, neglect, or they say, well, I guess some admit it. They say, well, it's Old Testament. But yes, there was punishments for sin, but that's Old Testament. But there's still plenty of punishments in the New Testament for the believer also. So there um, the so, so go ahead. The, uh, and for whatever, it, I don't think I'm trying to interrupt you. For whatever reason, anytime 
I say something and I see your lips move, but I can't hear anything. So um, it's kind of weird. Like I can't hear what you're saying right now. I have to oh. stop. But um, okay, so no, it's not you. It's it's the program. I yeah, you're good. You're you're totally good. So the reason why I'm asking you about David and the timing of his forgiveness versus his punishment is because you're building a doctrine that says he was forgiven but he was punished after he was forgiven. So I'm asking, what is he forgiven for? What is the punishment for what he was forgiven for? When was he forgiven? And when was he punished in, in relation to the thing that he's forgiven for? Because you're, you're obviously saying that this is a temporal punishment for sin that David did that required punishment and God's forgiveness. So... So um, I'm, I'm asking, because you're, you're obviously taking this as something that happened in his lifetime to say it, it, it drags over into the next life. For anything that's not forgiven, anything that's not punished, there's a necessity for it to be forgiven and, and punished in purgatory. So I'm asking where you get that. I guess from Holy Scripture. Can uh, you show me where? where we have, yeah, well, we have... Uh, Second Samuel, I believe, where uh, Nathan says to, to to David, "The Lord has forgiven your sin." Yes. Um, that's. But uh, he says, "But as a result of your sin, the Lord shall take away your firstborn." So it wasn't a natural like that. The firstborn was not. Some people say, "Well, that's a natural consequence," but his firstborn child died, was taken from him, yeah. as, as a punishment. It was a temporal punishment, even though he was forgiven. So that's the understanding of the eternal and temporal punishment for all sin. Deuteronomy talks about that, where um, all sin, all sin is uh, provides an accountability. So if we have um, uh, references to where in the New Testament as well, where people are are forgiven but they're still punished. Yeah. Um, so you know so I mean? like, that's a good point. I'm sorry, go ahead. You you want to finish your thought there? Yeah, like for example, uh, I believe that's, like I said, purgatory is just a matter of, like what many Protestants believe in one sense, of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. If I still have that anger, if I still haven't forgive someone from the heart, I'm not going to be declared righteous. I'm going to be, I need to be made righteous. I need to have God's saving grace um, through his blood on the cross. Uh, but if I somehow or another haven't like Jesus said, Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Love one another, for love can cover a multitude of your sins. Peter and Jesus are directly talking to temporal punishment. They're not talking to eternal punishment because we can't do it. But um, we have, like again, I said with David in both situations, he was forgiven. Uh, but I think the other situation when he, he numbered his army, he numbered his men because he kind of doubted in a sense. And he had disobeyed, but he was he was punished. He had several... Three, so those weren't natural consequences. They were divine punishments for his sin. Those temporal punishments for what he did. He was forgiven, but he was punished. So, for example, if you know David died in that army or whatever, and uh, he had forgiveness, he had asked God for mercy, he still had to be punished sometime. Yeah. Um, okay, so are you saying that the punishment of David somehow paid for his sins? The temporal punishment, yes. So David paid for his sins. He atoned for the, uh, the sins. Like that's what Jesus says. Uh, 
give alms. I don't know. A lot of Protestant pastors and people don't like when Jesus said certain things. <laughs> like, you know, and, and uh, you know, when Peter says, love one another, love covers a multitude of your sins. They don't know how we can cover and atone for those sins by loving one another. How can I love one another and when they say, well, Jesus covered our sins. But when you get to those passages like James chapter 5, when James says, um, whoever brings somebody back from the error of their ways, they will save their soul by what they did. Um, and they will cover a multitude of their own sin. So it's something that we can do. That the atone, We can atone definitely for the temporal punishment by cooperating with God's grace. Uh, we can't atone for the eternal punishment. Only Christ did that on the cross. God saves through his most precious blood. He's the foretold redeemer. His grace alone saves us. But in order for purification, sanctification, you know, James himself specifically it is by works and not by faith alone that we are justified. Because if I have, Paul says, even if one has all faith but does not love, it's useless. So if I if I die with anger in my heart, if I haven't forgiven my, my brother, I mean, I, I still have to uh, be made righteous. I can't be declared righteous. I have to somehow be transformed by the uh, purifying fires of Christ. Um, and I, I'm out of time, but I've got, I wanted to get this last question. I wanted to ask about Malachi uh, I wanted to ask about Malachi 3 as it's the related to purgatory, but I'm not going to have time for that, so I just want to read a couple verses and then get your take on it. And then if you needed some extra time to get those two questions in at the end of yours, you can have that. Um, but Psalm 49.8 and Psalm 72.14, I, I just want to read these and see what you think as it relates to purgatory and you paying for your sins. Psalm 49.8 says this, For the re redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, um, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise fool and brutish persons perish and, perish and leave their uh, wealth to others. But the, the concept is in verse um, 7 and 8. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. But then you've got um, verse 72.14. Psalm 72.14 says... Um, it says, He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight, and he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. How does that relate to the purgatorial fires as related to the redemption and atonement for a soul when it, when it clearly says in Psalm 49, 7, and 8 that the redemption of a person's soul is costly, and no man can do that. Well, I, I mean, I believe that. I, I, I definitely believe we can't save anybody else. Only God's blood can do that. But can we, in one sense, um, um, as God's co-workers, as the body of Christ, who are all members, and it's not just the living uh, here on earth. I think it's the, you know, the church militant, the church triumphant, and the church suffering. So like Jude, verse uh, 23 says, save some by snatching them out of the fire. So we can't save their eternal souls, but we can save them in one sense by lessening the temporal punishment, that purification that they have to go through. That Paul, you know, Paul says that the man and the works are gonna go through the fire. The man and its works. Like I said, it, it's, in hell it's not just bad, sin, bad works and sins, it's the people themselves as well. They will be in hell along with their, they can't be separated. So 
it's God. We can't redeem one another. God alone can. But we can, in one sense, uh, you know, like Paul. Paul prayed for honest of force, that God has mercy on his soul. Um, if you look at, like, for example, just in a special way, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. White can't stand the idea, Dr. James White, of treasury of merit. He says it's nowhere found in the Holy Scripture, and exactly it's not the term treasury of merit, but it's all over Scripture. For example, Second Second Kings, I think, um, God says, for the sake, uh, you know, for for the sake of my name, I will not allow Jerusalem to be uh, taken, uh, and also for the sake of my servant David, because of the love for I have for David, you will also not be punished. If we look at um, Job chapter forty-two. Um, Job offered prayers and sacrifices, and uh, the punishment that God was going to inflict on other people, um, they said, God said to those people, it was because of the prayers and sacrifices of Job that I will relent to the punishment that I was going to inflict on you. So I think as the body of Christ, um, not even death can separate us. So I, I think, you know what I mean? It's that we, you know, First uh, Corinthians 15 talks about, um, you know, suffering uh, on behalf of the souls of the dead uh, I, I think it's just as um, we, can, we can save other people but in one sense as co-workers we can help minimize the suffering to help uh, transform to trans you know that it's all it's all God's grace but he has to transform us like he can't he doesn't declare I think that's the biggest difference is we're not declared righteous we're made righteous through the purgatory of fire we have to go through that fire to be cleansed um, you know and but I do think without a doubt that there's something that we can do uh, to atone for sin, the, the temporal punishment. Now, I have some questions for you. Yeah. Uh, like yep. when, Jesus said, when Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you, um, is that blasphemy to you? Um, uh, so where, I mean, where is that? Luke 16, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, I can't remember where exactly it was in Luke 16, though. Well, I'm sorry, Luke 11. Luke 11. Okay. Um, where's it at in Luke 11 exactly? Uh, I think it's 41, 39, 40, Um, let's see. 41. Okay, so he's talking to the Pharisees in verse 37. I'll start there. He says, And he spake, and a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet, and when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said to him, "Now do you Pharisees make clean the house, uh, make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness? You fools! Did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you." But woe unto you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These things you ought to have done and not to leave for the undone. And he goes on to another woe of the Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the market. So you've got all these woes to the Pharisees and the scribes here in this passage that I think is, is something that um, would be drawn out of the idea of kind of a presupposition that alms is is what Jesus is describing as the Catholic idea of alms being meritorious for some sort of some sort some part of your salvation and I think what Jesus is describing here is 
quite the opposite of that. He's describing about he's describing the 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 work of somebody on the outside versus the work of somebody on the inside. He's saying that you guys tithe all the you tithe even off the mint. You tithe off of your stinking spices, but you don't give out of a a a good heart. And and he says um and pass over judgment and the love of God, these things you ought have done and not to leave the other undone. But he, he goes on to describe um, what, sh- what it should be. He's describing the outer works as, as something described in the outside of the cup of the platter, but the inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. So he's describing the works of somebody without the heart of somebody behind those works, which quite clearly is going to relate back to my position on 1 Corinthians 3, which describes the, the motives of one's heart being what is judged for the works and, and what's burned versus what isn't burned. God doesn't give a rip about your works if your heart isn't for what, what God has done for you first. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at there. Well, I think many scholars believe and attest that Jesus is actually quoting Sirach, chapter 3, um, where it says, Give as water extinguishes a fire, so does the giving of alms atone for sins. And that's what Jesus Christ is talking about. To be pure, to be truly pure, it's not something on the outside. Because the Pharisees wanted to make sure that they were looking pure and good on the outside. But Jesus knew their inside. And Jesus says to be truly pure, to be truly pure before God in one sense, is to, is to have love for your neighbor, for love for God. And as part of that uh, atoning for the temporal punishment, See, that's the difference. It's just the main thing is the temporal punishment is, is we can. Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Peter says, love one another and love covers a multitude of your sins. Uh, we have to understand that, you know, Peter's being very Catholic here. That, and so is Jesus when he says that there's something that we can do to atone for the temporal punishment due to our sins. Protestant pastors don't like when Peter said that, you know, where Jesus said that, that giving alms can make us pure and clean inside. Like, he didn't say, um, this is not about salvation, this is about purification before God, standing for the uh, purification before God. Um, that's why, like, Jesus in Matthew 12 says, you know, he's even talking to believers that before God on Judgment Day, you should be held accountable for every careless word. But why, why jo- Josh, would you believe that uh, we're going to be held accountable for a careless word when Jesus was already held accountable on the cross? Um, okay, so what, where exactly are we at in Matthew 12? Let's. I want to look at that. 36, I believe it is. Matthew 12, 36. Okay. And let's start in verse 32. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else... Make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you be evil, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of, of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil uh, treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give an account therefore in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So, what you would what you would take from this, I think that Jesus is talking about again, is he he's describing good works versus bad works, and he's describing the origination of good versus bad as being something that has to come from the heart. And and we know from even what First John writes about 
John writes about in his first first epistle that um, that we love him because he first loved us. So the motives for the Christian, which is what you you referenced in your last reference in Luke 11, that clearly it's it's what Christ is referring back to as the motive behind one's works, and you can see that most explicitly in Matthew 19 with with his with, with, with the description that Christ gives to the rich young, young ruler. The rich young ruler is, is describing, is trying to describe the meritorious actions that he has to be qualified for heaven. And, and Christ just tacks on another, uh, la, uh, another rung to the bar and says, you haven't met it yet. Well, did you give her, he says, I've kept the law since I was a youth. And then he says, well, okay, go give away everything that you have to the poor. And why did he say that? Because that's where his heart was at. His heart was with what he had, and he couldn't give it away. And and so Christ is clearly getting at the heart of the person behind the the works that they do. If your works aren't, or if your motives don't go back to what Christ first did for you, you have the wrong motive, and they don't count for anything. Um, and and ultimately, your works, um, when it comes to your salvation is something that Christ is clearly pointing to, uh, pointing people to himself. He's showing them, like, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. He says that I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Um, and and more, more clearly, he says in John 20, 31, that I have the words of life, and these are the words of life that you may believe, and that by believing you might have life, and life eternally. And 1 John 5, 7 says um, that by believing, you may know that you have eternal life. And I, I think this is what Christ is getting at, is just look to Christ for your salvation. If you're looking to anything that you're doing, it's not going to get you to heaven, ever. It's Christ or it's nothing at all. And that's, so I think those are the, those are the points that he's getting at. But Okay, so we've got five minutes of closing statements. Guys, we're going to give you a chance to call in with your questions. I'm going to put that up on the screen for you to see. That number is going to be 816-866-0025. And I want you to call in, but we've got five minutes of closing statements. And and Matthew's going to go first, so let me get this clock set back to five minutes for him. And I'll put the camera on you as well, so whenever you're ready. Okay, sure, sure. I, I do believe that when Jesus says, whoever believes, I, I think sometimes what happens is that many Protestant pastors separate Christ from his teaching. They have to. You know, for three years, Jesus, Jesus Christ taught what we must do. What we must do, unless you become like a little child. Protestant pastor says, no, I don't have to do that. Jesus Christ says you have to forgive in order to forgive us. The pastor says, no, I don't have to forgive. I do not. Um, Jesus Christ says, we, um, you know, we must uh, take up our cross each day. Protestant pastors say, say, no, we don't have So a lot of times, Protestant pastors are not happy with what Jesus Christ taught. So they just say, oh, well, faith alone. Um, but James refutes faith alone when he says it's by works, not by faith. Because if we are, um, you know, if faith without works is, is, is dead. So we must bear good fruit. We must. Jesus says to those who are branches, his branches, Jesus says to my branches that do not bear good fruit, there should be cut off. Now, we must understand again, over and over again, the Catholic Church has taught, you know, we'll be in 
uh, in heaven still teaching that it's God's saving grace. It's God's saving grace. Um, but we must forgive in order to be forgiven. Protestant pastors think that's not true. We don't have to do that. We just simply don't have to do that. Catholic Church believes we can't do that apart from God's grace. We can't do anything good apart from God, but we must do good. Jesus says do good to those who persecute you. We have to do good. We have to love our enemies. We have to forgive our enemies. We can't do it apart from God. But if you don't forgive, um, and, but will, you know, it, that's just the thing is God's grace and his mercy is there. But come judgment day, if I have anger in my heart toward my brother, I'm not forgiving my brother, but I'm a servant of God who's hope for his mercy, but has not always done the will of God. Luke 11, uh, Luke 12, 47 says, to the one who knows the will of God, uh, to the servant, he uses the word servant, Jesus Christ, um, but does not do it, um, shall be severely punished. Protestant pastors don't like that. They don't like that at all. They, they kind of skip over that and say, well, no, no, Jesus Christ took on all our punishments. But Jesus totally refutes that, totally refutes that. And says, you uh, must forgive. You, um, you are the one who must do the will of God. And you can't do that apart from me. We can't do anything apart from Christ, but we have to do it. So it's God that saves us. But if, um, if we don't cooperate with his grace, you know, Paul himself says, even if one has all faith but does not love, Jesus. So Colossians 3.14 says, of all these things, you must be on love. So if we don't love our enemy, if we don't love our enemies, we don't love our neighbors, if we don't forgive, if we're angry with them, and uh, I need sanctification, um, and if I stand before Christ, if I die, and I'm not sanctified yet, if I have anger in my heart toward my brother, if I haven't forgiven my brother, hopefully if I hope in the mercy of God, um, God will save me. But if I haven't forgiven my brother, and if I'm still angry with my brother, I can't stand before the judgment seat of Christ being full of anger and uh, not having forgiven my brother. So the transforming fires of purgatory that Paul talks about and Malachi references about cleansing, purifying, um, these make us pure. These make us righteous. All that sarcasm, all that um, the times I haven't forgiven, um, all the times I was angry, I will be purified of all that before I'm able to stand in the presence of God that he won for me by his saving grace in the consuming fire. But I think the most important thing, which um, is, is still a huge uh understanding is when Peter says love one another for love covers a multitude of your sins how can we cover our sins how can we cover our sins Protestant pastors don't like that but we can we must we can do that by atoning for the temporal punishment to our sins that's the biggest distinction we're not saving ourselves um, Christ alone can do that we are purifying ourselves the temporal punishments um, Jesus says give on and all be clean within you that's a reference back to uh, to uh, Sirach but the book of Daniel, which is not the Septuagint, but it's also used, um, says, um, break off your sins, the temporal punishment, something that happened to David, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. The book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 6, says, by loyalty and obedience is iniquity atoned for. And that's talking about temporal punishments. So purgatory is just not St. Augustine, it was St. Augustine confirmed it, but it was also Tertullian, Cyril, Origen, Ambrose, prayers for the dead like Paul did for his fellow Christian Paul prayed that God has mercy on his fellow Christian um, upon the judgment and um, we need to be pure we need to strive for that holiness without which we will not see the Lord the Lord who saved us by his blood um, 
But the purification, like it says, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling to be pure in his eyes. Okay, Josh. Thank awesome. You. Okay, thank you. And I'll remind you guys after this five minutes of closing statements here, I'm going to turn it over to you. You can call in. And if you could just wait till I'm wrapping up to call in, uh, and that, that'll give me a chance to answer the phone. But uh, those will obviously be the priority uh, over those who type in your questions. But also uh, for that, in that regard, if you do have questions that you don't want to call in, just type them in and, and make sure you address it to me. Um, that way I know that it's going to be a question and I don't get caught in kind of the, um, the chats that are going on there. So if you could keep that in mind and I will put this up on, I think I've got it up there five minutes and I'll go from there. So anyways, I, I appreciate Matthew being willing to come on and do this, do the debate regarding purgatory. I, I think that it's a, it's a topic that most Catholics would admit is not explicitly taught in scriptures that it's drawn to directly in conjunction of of tradition with scripture and i think that if you if if we had time we could go back through um any of the early church fathers that he would like to have looked at um for what we saw in the debate he just made the claim that the early church fathers taught this but he didn't give any quotations what they actually said or what they taught so it's kind of hard to address those points um but maybe someday we can go through what the early church fathers taught uh, but I, I still think that we've got a fundamental problem that you've, you're, when, the, when the tradition of the church teaches something that's not explicitly taught in the scripture, as, as a Catholic, you have to go with what the church teaches. But when it comes to the idea of what scripture teaches and in, in, uh, where it would contradict what the tradition teaches, you're going to have a really tough time rejecting what... Uh, the tradition teaches, or what the church teaches in in reference to tradition, because if you don't, if you do reject it, then you're anathematized. In the Council of Trent, it says that if anybody um, says that it's by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, that that person is to be anathema. If, if anyone says that um, you reject the the dogma of the indulgent, uh, not the indulgent, the doctrine of uh, purgatory, that that person is to be anathema for not believing that that person is to cleanse for, uh, for any temporal sins that weren't uh, punished in this life. They would punish in the next. That person is to be anathema. So obviously you're going to have a hard time rejecting those traditions of the Catholic Church where you see uh, the scripture teaching otherwise. But what I would urge any Catholic who's watching this to take into consideration that, that the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of purgatory go hand in hand. So when Matthew says that we're preaching two different Gospels, I, that's exactly right. We are preaching two different Gospels. The Gospel that I'm preaching is, is telling you that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to pay for your sins. And that's why I, I made reference to Psalm 49 and Psalm 72, which says, which God is speaking, and he's saying that the price of someone's soul is costly and that no man can pay for it neither can he redeem it. It's impossible. You cannot redeem or atone for your sins, for your soul, in this life or the next. When he brings up examples of David and he brings up examples of, of people that are being punished, like uh, in Malachi 3, which was the punishment of Judah um, for, for their sins against God, um, what, we, what we do is we, we look in Hebrews 13 where it describes the chastening of a son, and God says that he will chasten whom he loves. 
That's the correction of a son to a father. It's not the punishment of a son for his sins to pay for his sins to the father. That's not the relationship of the father to you as a son. That's not the relationship that God has with his children. He chastens them to correct them, to bring them back to him, to have fellowship with them. And I think when we get the idea of justification, essentially what we're saying is Christ did pay it all, in fact. And uh, it's everything past, present, and future for every single person in the world who has ever lived. Now, the deciding factor of whether a person goes to heaven or hell isn't whether their sins have been forgiven or whether their sins have been punished or whether their sins have been atoned for, because we believe that Christ already did that. We believe that Christ paid the penalty for sin. He took our place on the cross, the penalty for sin being death. He took our place on the cross and was our substitute. The Bible talks about him being our substitute in Romans 5, but I'll end it with this when it, re when it comes to your justification. And if you're trusting your justification to be in any way your works, even if you want to say that it's the grace of God to give you works, to have good enough works to be justified to get to heaven, you're still in a, in a world of difference between the works of Christ to be justified and the works of the person to be justified. In Romans, uh, Romans 3, 4, he says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when you are judged. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I believe the Catholic Church has given you a law of grace. If you do this, you'll get enough grace to do that to earn your justification. That's a heretical doctrine. That's a heretical gospel. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Romans 4.2 says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. But in Romans 5.1 he says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Catholic never knows if he has peace with God. He can never know truly that he's been justified. He can never know truly that he's going to heaven because the Catholic is trusting in the temporal punishments of his sins to be paid for by himself to get him through the purgatorial fires and into heaven. And that would lead us into uh, possibly another debate topic that we should do, which is that of indulgences, is uh, what could shorten one's purgatorial cleansing. Could it be uh, following the Pope on Twitter, which he suggested. If you if you follow me on Twitter, you could shorten your times in the purgatorial fires, um, which would be an indulgence. So I think that's going to be a great example, guys, to end this debate and to show the differences, uh, the major differences between myself and Matthew Broderick is is the, the, the idea of just, justification and the need for ongoing justification through temporal sins that need to be cleansed through purgatorial fires that you will not find in scriptures. So obviously you're going to see a difference between rewards and salvation when it comes to our views. But anyways, Matthew, thanks again for doing the debate. Guys, I know we've got some questions that have been coming in. Uh, go ahead and call in. Let me put that number. If you want to call in and get your question in first, um, that number to call is going to be 816. Whoops, wrong button there. Number is 816-866-0025. And the calls are obviously going to get the priority um, so you can just let us know whatever your question is, whether it's to myself or to Matthew. I know there's a lot of things that you're not able to bring up in a debate like this that obviously hindsight you would like to. Uh, and I'm sure Matthew feels the same way, but um, go ahead and call in if you've got a question and um, we'll, we'll get to that first. But let me scroll through here and see 
if we've got any that have come in. Let's see. All right, so Gary Whitehouse says, I want to put this up here. Maybe you guys can see it up top. I think that'll show up all right. Yeah, you should be able to see that. Okay, so the passage, he says, the passage you used in James is talking about is talking about a tribulation passage where they have to show their works by their faith. We're saved by faith alone without works. What, what I think that would be directed to you, Matthew. While I answer this call, would you like to answer that? And then I'll give a rebuttal real quick. Oh, sure. Yeah, we're saved by God's grace. We're saved by God's grace. But uh, James is very clear, and the Holy Spirit confirms through James that it is by works and not by faith alone that we are justified. Um, Josh read uh, Romans 3, but Josh conveniently left out Romans 2, where Paul says, God shall give to everyone according to one's works, and to those who would these shall enter into the resurrection of life. That's hmm. We lost the sound on that for some reason. I'm not sure what's going on. Matthew, we uh, we didn't hear. I didn't hear the last half of what you were saying there for some reason. I believe that the Holy Spirit is very clear that speaking to Jesus by work, not by faith alone. The only time the word faith alone is ever together is faith. I know you talked about Romans three, but in Romans two, uh, under the law of grace, Paul says um yeah i'm i'm still having trouble hearing you i think so i'll just i'll respond to um james well i'm not gonna have time for that let me let me get this call i'll have these two calls on hold and and I, um the first caller hang on with me for just a second i'm gonna get this other call on here and put him on hold call from Hey, I'm going to put you on hold for just a second. We're going to come back to you in just a minute, okay? I do, thank you. Awesome, thank you. Okay. All right, so if you could, um, this should be our first caller. Just state what your name is and to who your question is to, and uh, we'll go from there. So you've, you've got the floor. Hi, uh, my name's Mike. Um, can you hear me? Yes, sir. I can hear you just fine. Okay. First of all, I'd like to thank both of you guys for handling this debate uh, like it should be done with a uh, with a kind spirit. And uh, I've enjoyed it. And I came in late, so you may have already addressed this, but I was wanting to ask Matt, uh, if a Christian commits a mortal sin, um, how do they pay for that sin? Or how is that atoned for? if he's committed after, you know, being saved. And yeah. I'm going to hang up and listen to you guys. And thanks again for everything y'all did. Perfect. Thanks for the question, Mike. Matthew, yeah, what would be your take uh -huh. on, on mortal sin? Cause, and I wanted to get to that. I didn't get a chance to, so I'm glad that was brought up because obviously you've got David who committed two mortal sins, adultery and murder, um, yes. but you're saying he was forgiven and punished. So how would that relate to purgatory and mortal sins for the person who sins? has a mortal sin, and uh, how does that relate to getting to heaven? So, thanks, Mike. Oh, yes. 
Thank you for your call. I appreciate calling in. Yes, I believe uh, first, uh, first John, Paul talks about, uh, I'm sorry, John talks about the difference between mortal and, and, and venial sin. Um, so uh, I believe that if someone does commit adultery uh, or murder, um, you know, Paul talks about to Christians, Paul warns baptized Christians, if you do such things and you don't repent, you shall not enter the kingdom. So he definitely talks about the, the need to cooperate with God's grace and obey. Jesus Christ says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So we can only keep the commandments by God's grace. If we fall, we repent. We, you know, we're weak, but we have to repent. We have to also obey. Um, but if we, um, we have to, in some sense, if we don't atone for any sins, um, after death, if we are forgiven, if we ask for forgiveness, John says in his letter, we must confess our sins. So we need to confess. And uh, if, if we can't do the atoning here, after death, we will be purified, transformed, um, if we hope in the saving grace of God. No worries. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's much better. So, um, Okay, so we've got our second caller uh, in for your question. If you could state your name to who your question is to, and you've got the yeah. floor. Okay, my name is June, and my question is to Matt. And my question is this, is that what really disturbs me is that you're sitting here and you're teaching people and you have a form here. And your lack of knowledge of the Word of God, uh, His Word, because our Bible is the Word of God, because it does say in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This Bible is the most precious resource that we have for the truth of God. Within it gives us the beginning of us when we were formed in sin, from the beginning of creation of Adam and Eve, when they fell in the garden and they ate up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right till the very end, to the book of Revelation, his word is true. Let men, let God be true, and every man a sinner. And if you would find for me the word, the definition, and, the, and Jesus Christ talking about purgatory, if you could find me in his word where you talk about limbo, where a baby who was born and not go through the rites of Catholic uh, baptism are uh, deemed not fit for God's eyes in heaven. If you could explain to me where a church, because I grew up in the Catholic Church, that taught me that I must pray to God and that if someone I love died, we're not fit for the kingdom of God, but yet a high mass of $5, and that's telling you my age, or a low mass of $3 or $2, would take that person's pain away for a certain amount, certain amount of time. Like I say, God is in no need of a bank. What God requires of us is faith in the finished work of the cross at Calvary, because when he went to the cross, he bankrupted heaven. He mm. took every sin that every man has ever committed, and he laid it upon the Son of God so that all sin was paid for. Because God knew that we were born into sin through Adam and Eve. By one man, sin entered the world, but yet by another man, all sacrifice for sin was paid at that cross. That's we must go to the cross, not yeah. the traditions of men, not the oral thoughts of you. Anything that All right, you have Jim. to say, you go to the Word. 
Hey, June, that's good. I, I think we can, so we can obviously see your passion there. You've got, you've got a, you've got a, a very sincere and good desire for the word of God. Obviously you've got, um, a previous, you, you came from the Catholic church, so it's personal to you. I, I did not come from personal. the, but you know what I find is, is, um, what, what I'm seeing right here with, with kind of your emotion that's coming out in your question, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. Um, but I see that a lot with Catholics who have, who have come from the Catholic church and, 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 and see this for what the Bible is teaching in contradiction to it. But I do want to give you a chance, Matthew, how would you respond to that? She's got a lot in there. She's got, um, She's she's got the idea of the bank of God, the treasury of God, that and 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 indulgences was part of her question, and 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 paying to get people shorter times in purgatory, and uh, but she's saying, show me in the Bible where Jesus ever talks about purgatory. And so if you could, um, we'll get a response from you, and then June, I, I appreciate your call. Sure, sure. To be honest with you, I think she might have to answer for God. And tell God that I never said that the Bible is not the Word of God. I never said that I ever said that just that the Bible is not the Word of God. I never said that at all. Jesus Christ is almost the Word of God. If that's then I'm guilty of sin. But I also said that oral tradition is the Word of God. First Thessalonians two thirteen. What you have heard from us is the Word of God. Uh, Second Thessalonians only two fifteen. It says what. Believe what we have taught you either by letter or by word of mouth. So that the oral word and the written word is both the word of God. So um, I can stand before God. Um, uh, I'm a sinner, of course, I know. But I don't think I ever said that the Bible is not the word of God, which she accused me of saying. But um, I forgive her for, for that. But God does talk about uh, Jesus Christ saying that he didn't take on all the punishments. Jesus Christ himself said, if you do not forgive, neither will you be forgiven. So apparently that was not a punishment that Jesus took on himself. Jesus says, if you do not forgive, so too in Matthew 18, the servant who does not forgive shall be severely punished. Luke 12, the servant who knows the will of God, but who doesn't do it shall be severely punished. Um, the caller may not have an issue with the church. She may have an issue with the word of God that reveals punishments. Um, but God is a God of mercy. He's a God of, of, of kindness, you know. Um, but again, we have Paul praying for the dead. We have Jude saying that we can help those who are in fire, the cleansing fire. We have, um, uh, as the body of Christ, we are all believers and we are one body to help one another. It's God's saving grace, but the accountability is, is there. And um, like I said, John in his letter says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, um, Peter says, love one another for love covers a multitude of your sins. How can our love cover our sins? And that's because it's the temporal punishment. So um, to the caller, I said, um, you know, I'm sorry that you've been hurt. But um, if you read the catechism and pray, uh, maybe have some Eucharistic adoration, I believe that Jesus will pull you back home to the church that he established before the New Testament was even written. So I ask you to pray for me, and I will pray for you to the caller. Um, okay, so I will. I, I don't see any other questions that are coming in here. So I'd, I'd like, I'll take just a second, because I didn't get a, re a chance to respond to James because um, I was taking the call that was coming in. But in, in James 2, obviously, you're going to see uh, the difference between the Catholic interpretation and what a free grace interpretation would be on this. But it, you see the difference where he says in verse 17, even so a faith, even so faith if it have, has not works is dead being alone. So obviously, the Catholic would point out the idea that 
the only time that you see the words faith and alone together is when he says that faith without works is dead being alone. So, but if you keep on reading, it doesn't stop there. In verse 18, he says, yeah, man may say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he goes on to the description of Abraham being justified when he offered Isaac. And then you've got, you've got, um, uh, why can't it? Rahab, who who was used as an example following Abraham, and and I think the key is in verse eighteen, where he's talking about a description of of someone being able to see faith in action, and he said, "Well, I'll show you my faith by my works. You can't see my faith because faith is something that's not seen. It's it's something that's demonstrated." So he gives the example of Abraham when he offered Isaac. Well, you say, "Well, nobody was there when he offered Isaac." Well, Isaac was there. And God was there. So Isaac knew, but he but at the bottom of the hill, he had all his servants there. And remember when he went up there, he promised everyone, he told everyone that he and the lad would return to them. So you, you've got the idea that faith, Abraham had the faith that him and, and him and Isaac would come back to them either by resurrection or by promise that he wouldn't be sacrificing Isaac. So what, what you see there is the great picture of the work of Christ being the sacrifice for the work that man could never do. In fact, he takes man all the way, Abraham, to the point of offering Isaac on an altar, showing the work of man to atone for their own sins, the man being the one on the altar. And you know what God did? He stopped that because he said, no, you cannot atone for your own sins ever. Man cannot do the work that God does. God has to be the one to atone for man's sins by, by coming down and becoming a man and laying on the altar himself, which would be the cross for us. So what you see then in Romans 4 would be the great idea in showing that Abraham could never be justified before God by his works, but he could be justified before man and comparing that to James 2. But you also mentioned James 5 where it talks about saving one is pulling them out of the fire. And I think that this is going to be a great reference to what you also referenced as, as one suffering loss and suffering punishment and, and the destruction of, of a person. Um, as obvious reference to references to Christians, this is where we draw the distinction between the rewards as loss and not the salvation as the loss of the Christian. So when we look at, at, at the person coming out of the fire, you've still got your salvation. The man came out, but he, 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 he suffered loss as the reference to the destruction that happened when he came through that fire. That's the destruction of the Christian and the warnings to the Christian that when you when you lack forgiveness, when you lack love, when you lack, um, when you lack the scriptural references to um, the 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 aspects of of saving, as you see in James five, with the saving of pulling them out of the fire, that's coming through the judgment seat of Christ, saving them from the loss and the destruction of what they would have, and that's not your soul, that's not your salvation, and it doesn't require any extra purging for anything that wasn't punished in this lifetime because God doesn't punish his sons for the sense of atoning their sins. He chastens his sons for the sense of fellowship with them in this lifetime. That's why you won't find any explicit references to purgatory in the entire Bible. It has to be brought through in conjunction of tradition and scripture. So, uh, Jude, I do appreciate your your uh, zealousness for uh seeing the, the, the contradictions of Scripture and the, the Catholic tradition when it comes to purgatory, because it seems like, it seems misleading. You see things like the Pope saying, well, if you follow me on Twitter, that, that you may shorten your time in purgatory. And to me, that's like, if that really is, 
if that if that really is real, purgatory really is real, and the Pope believes it's really real, it that seems like a stinking mockery of, of what even Catholics would believe about purgatory. Like you follow the Pope on Twitter, you're gonna get a shorter you're gonna get a shorter sentence to purgatory. Like and, and I I mean what the the sense of the sense of a payment to the Catholic Church and the abuses that the Catholic Church has had of of indulgences to build St. Peter's Basilica, for example. It's just uh, for that rant, guys, I th- I think that, that if I can sum up the position, that it, it would it would obviously be a, be a distinction between the finished atoning work of Christ and uh, what what a Catholic has to believe is as an unfinished uh, finished work of Christ for forgiveness, but an unfinished work of atonement that you would have to do to pay for your sins as a punishment to get to heaven. So um, essentially, you you do have you have, you have great contradictions here. So, anyways, if you've got any other questions, guys, let me see. Uh, if we've got a chance to take a look at this. Uh, let's see. Paul didn't say, let me see if I can put this out there. Paul didn't say, if baptized Christians do mortal sins, they have to repent, do penance. Galatians 5.21 says that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a statement. It's not really a question, but... Um, and I'm not really sure who that would be directed to, but if you guys have a question, maybe Matthew, do you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, well, I, it's obvious that babies can't commit murders. <laughs> I don't know what that came from. Um, but no, Jesus says um, the church has never officially taught as dogma the, the idea of limbo. It was just a uh, an understanding by even some of the church fathers when Jesus said, you must believe and be baptized, you must believe and be baptized. So sometimes there are babies that were, if babies are not baptized, because um, as child's babies were entered into covenant with God through circumcision, and Peter announced that circumcision was no longer necessary, even though the Holy Scripture said that it was, um, you know, Peter was given the opportunity to bind and loose by the keys of the kingdom. So um, circumcision replaces baptism. That's where you know, we have that's why we baptize babies to bring them into covenant with God. But there's understanding that the babies are under God's mercy. It was just an understanding of what happens to babies if they're not baptized. Jesus says you must believe and be baptized. So we're just trying to understand exactly how God meant that. Yeah. Um, and and there's um, again, I, I think we've talked about this before. I guess the difference between me is the Catholic Church is we talk about we understand what Jesus Christ, everything he teaches, everything when Jesus says. To the servant who doesn't forgive, to the servant who doesn't, um, who's angry with his brother, you shall be judged, you shall be punished. But Protestants say that's not true. So I'm just going to go with Jesus Christ on this one, and um, and I'm going to listen to what Jesus says on this because, you know, uh, I have to go with Jesus on this. I have I have to. I, when Jesus says to the one who doesn't forgive, my heavenly Father will throw you in the prison and not release you until all your debts are paid. He's not talking about an earthly prison like Alcatraz. If we haven't uh, forgiven our neighbor and we're servants of God, but we haven't done so, after death, that prison um, is talking about the uh, purifying fires. Like, again, those purifying fires, the person comes out saved. Church doesn't doesn't teach the person comes out condemned. Purgatory transforms the person. They come out saved. But we have to be forgiven. Uh, We have been forgiven, provided we ask for forgiveness. Um, and we have to um, forgive others. And Jesus says you'd be punished if you do that. 
I just have to go with Jesus on that. Yeah. Okay. So I think this will be a good place to bring our conversation to a wrap. I think obviously um, you believe you believe in punishments. I believe in punishments. You believe in punishments that result in either a loss or a gain of one's salvation. I believe in punishments. Uh, rather, I don't know if I would use the word punishment. I think that I would use the word trying because that'd be more of a biblical term in reference to the loss and the destruction that one sees at the judgment seat of Christ. But what I would say is, I do believe in I do believe in that um, I do believe in loss, destruction, judgment of a Christian. I just don't believe it's a judgment for your salvation. I believe that it's a judgment for your service, and and there's a lot of reasons why I would believe that. And I think it's clearly uh, shown in the distinguishment that I tried to lay out in our and the differences that we have on justification, um, and and the chastisement of a father to a son. But guys, I think. I, I really appreciate you, Matthew, for coming back on and doing this debate on purgatory. Um, you're welcome on any time. Uh, so that's it's always good to have you. And thank you guys for participating, for our callers who called in. Uh, thank you for the passion. Thank you for just the preparation, everything. And for obviously moving it up a week because we had this scheduled for next week. And I texted you a couple days ago. And you're like, yeah, man, I'll do it. I'm ready. So um, that's good stuff. So anyways. To the Catholic caller who's called in, um, please pray for me, and I will pray for you. I know a lot of some Catholics have left the church, but a lot of Protestants uh, pastors have come into the church after a lot of study and prayer. So it's um, we just uh, have to really uh, understand that God's word is both written and oral, uh, because that's what God's word says. The written and Jesus Christ Himself is the eternal word, He who came first. So uh, thank you, Josh, for the opportunity, and I appreciate all those who listen. I ask their prayers for me, and I'll, I will pray for you all. Thank you. That's good. Awesome. Okay, so uh, that's going to be a wrap for today's episode. Guys, let me give you an update here. We'll go to the closing scene. Let me get the volume down. And I'm going to be off Thanks. next week, but uh, the week after that, June 19th, uh, we're going to have James Snap Jr. on, and we're going we're gonna to follow up on some text criticism questions refuting some things that Bart Ehrman and others have said questioning uh, what Jesus wrote in the gospel. So what did Jesus actually say? Bart's got a book called uh, Misquoting Jesus. Uh, we'll be able to go through some of the popular arguments to give you confidence that what was actually um, written and spoken by Jesus Christ was actually preserved as well. And that you can rest assured that what you've got today is, is what you've got in the Bible. Obviously, he and I are going to have some differences because he's not a TR guy, um, and I am. But uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation. So um, stay tuned for that. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this. Please like, share, and feel free to um, put this in different Facebook groups and all, the, all that good stuff. But it'll be on audio within 24 hours, hopefully. So you can get it on your podcasting audio platforms as well. Anyways, that's all I've got, guys. I hope that was a blessing to you. And uh, obviously, I'm, I would make the final appeal that the clear gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be the finished work of Christ and your faith in the finished work of Christ in order for you to get to heaven. If you're trusting anything other than Christ to get you to heaven, um, including your own works or an atonement for your own sins that Christ uh, punishes you for, that you need to be punished for in order to get to heaven, that's that's a false gospel. And uh, I would encourage you, if, you've, if you're in a church or the Catholic church that teaches that, to come out of that and to find a good local church that actually teaches you um, to trust in the finished work of Christ. So I, lo I love you guys. I hope that message came across in a message of love and not condemnation because I, I do want you to understand the true gospel of Jesus Christ 
as it's presented in scripture. And tradition is important, but um, tradition doesn't overrule scripture. Scripture overrules tradition where scripture, where tradition would contradict scripture. So with that said, guys, God bless and have a great evening.